nurses and nurse midwives of the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is the Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, WMH.org. Stay tuned. Coming up next is Talk Shop, a live edition with talking about veterans affairs. Well, good evening, and welcome to the October edition of Let's Talk Vets. This program is produced by vets, for vets, and I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, USAF 1968-1972. Our mission is simple, to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. We also hope this feature will broaden the understanding of these men and women and their families who have answered the call to duty to serve and protect the United States and its citizens at all costs. Tonight we'll have some national and international news of interest to veterans. We'll also have a couple of great interviews tonight. Um, And uh, we'll discuss a very serious and complex issue facing our veterans, opioid addiction and the causes, and we'll speak with John Crotty, director of the Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency, and with Chris Deutsch, the director of communications, National Association of Drug Court Professionals. But first, however, here are some dates of note in October. Well, October 7th was Miss Veteran America pageant. October 8th was, of course, Columbus Day. And uh, October 13th will be the USN birthday. Happy birthday to all my Navy buddies out there. And uh, October 26th will be National Day of the Deployed. You know, it seems not a day goes by when opioid addiction is not in the news. And according to the Center for Disease Control, from 1999 to 2016, more than 630,000 people died from drug overdose. In 2016 alone, 66% of more than 63,600 drug overdose deaths involved opioids. In 2016, the number of overdose deaths involving opioids, including prescription opioids, Vicodin and Oxycontin, illegal opioids like heroin and illicitly manufactured fentanyl, was five times higher than 1999. On average, 115 Americans die every day from opioid overdoses. How in the world did we get here? Well, the CDC and others attribute that to three time periods and three drivers. In the early 90s, big pharmaceuticals put on a major push to promote 
their benefits of their opioid-based medications for the long-term treatment of chronic pain. By the uh, early 2000s, healthcare providers and organizations and government authorities realized that overprescription of opioid-based pain medications had become a national concern. The immediate reaction, of course, was to introduce regulations governing the prescription of these drugs. Unfortunately, not all states participated and regulations were not uniform. In any case, new regulations did little to stem the problem and in large part only aided to push addicted, uh, those addicted to opioid painkillers toward other more readily available and cheaper drugs like heroin. By 2013, with heroin in high demand, enterprising drug dealers began to introduce synthetic drugs, including illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Fentanyl is much stronger than heroin. Users never know exactly what they're getting or how strong it will be, a risky wager which many lose. The facts and statistics we've just talked about apply to the general population of the U.S. Veterans, however, are more vulnerable to addiction, and there are many reasons. According to the VA, at least 60% of the vets returning from deployments in the Middle East and 50% of older veterans from previous conflicts suffer from chronic pain. These rates far exceed the national average of 30%. Those suffering with PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, caused by experiencing horrific events while serving, are three to four times more likely to commit suicide, and far too many survive the battle only to lose their personal war when they seek relief with drugs and alcohol. Veterans, like others, are very reluctant to seek treatment for PTSI, primarily due to the stigma attached to mental health illness. So prescribing opioids for the treatment of chronic pain to someone who is undiagnosed or misdiagnosed with PTSI is a prescription for disaster. The extended issue that many veterans become first responders, and if these conditions are not diagnosed and treated properly, a stressful situation can trigger a bad reaction. It should also be noted that some first responders who are not veterans suffer from PTSI for the same reasons as vets. So in the first responder community, the dangers of undiagnosed PTSI are very real. All service members undergo two major transitions. When enlistees join others from varied backgrounds in the melting pot, which is basic training, groups of individuals are transformed into cohesive units. These men and women establish their new military identity, gain social standing and advancement in rank, and gain a sense of accomplishment. The transition from military to civilian is not nearly as structured. Many vets feel very out of place and overwhelmed by civilian society that does not understand them. Those who have seen combat have a rougher time, but regardless of the nature of the veteran service, one question is far too common. What is my purpose now? Finding gainful employment is a challenge. Some vets have to reinvent themselves. Seeking higher education and fitting into a campus with classmates who are generally much younger in terms of both age and maturity, can be a real stress on a veteran. And in the military, your routine is regimented. There are rules for everything. Housing's provided, and all necessary services are not only available, but many are mandated. Dealing with the many choices and decisions of civilian life can be overwhelming. And returning to the family you left to serve your country only to realize that out of necessity, they have learned to function without you.
Well, we won't be able to hit all the bases tonight, but we're going to try. There's many services available to help vets with these addictions to get the help that they need. And uh, one of them is the Veterans Service Agency right here in Monticello. We're speaking today with John Crotty, Director of Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency. John, when last we spoke, we discussed your agency's role as a service provider, as well as a gateway to services provided by other agencies. Our program this month focuses on veterans and opioid addiction. And while preparing for this program, I realized we could not do this topic justice without acknowledging how PTSI factors into addiction. Now, for those who don't recognize that term, you will recognize PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, the medical professionals have decided that disorder has too negative a connotation, and so they're using the term PTSI for what it really is, post-traumatic stress injury. It's a brain injury resulting from experiencing an event so horrific that one's mind cannot reconcile it with one's conscience. So when a vet who's suffering from PTSI receives classic opiate-based medication for chronic pain, it is truly a prescription for disaster. John, when a friend, family member, or a vet comes to the Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency, what is the process employed to determine what services that vet needs? Well, the first thing, as anyone would need to do, is to sit down Try to put the client at ease, make them comfortable, encourage them in any way we can to talk about what it is that brought them here. Try to identify what the issues are. Uh, we're going to kind of make a bit of a, a judgment as to whether or not this person is under severe stress or discomfort, and then find an avenue for them to find the services they need. Our first go-to people for any client is to suggest that they go right up the road to the VA clinic for the medical side and for the counseling side. They usually have uh, an experienced counselor there who's familiar with both PTSD and with uh, substance abuse issues and the like, and we're very comfortable with the services that they provide. For one reason or another, maybe VA is not the the best direction to go at a particular time. So then we're going to uh, refer this person, and if necessary, we'll bring them to Liberty to Department of Family Services. And they have skilled people there who can open doors towards lodging if it's needed, meal vouchers, get them on their feet, put them in a direction to get the assistance they need. And that's pretty much the two courses we're going to use. There's a lot of other service networks out there, but uh, we don't like to be in a position of having to uh, critique someone else's program and decide whether or not they're appropriate. We prefer to refer the, our clients to people we can give a warm handoff to and know in our hearts that the people we refer them to, such as the VA, are not going to drop the ball, are not going to just let this person languish, but are going to be very active to get them the care they need. Okay, our program this month also includes interviews with the uh, Department of Health and the Veterans Treatment Court. So how does the Veterans Service Agency become aware 
that a vet is getting services from another agency. For example, if a vet is arrested and referred to Vets Treatment Court, how would you become aware of that? Well, uh, we only know what's brought to us. So the few times we've had a veteran come in who tells us he's got a legal problem, he's in a situation, the first thing we're going to do is ask them, who's your attorney, what's your status, what's going on? Uh, with the client's permission, we'll contact their attorney and explain to them they are a veteran, that uh, the vet court might be an appropriate venue to pursue. The law enforcement, the DA's office, the courts, they're all familiar with vet court and what it offers. Uh, basically, it's an alternative to incarceration, but they have their certain criteria. They need to achieve certain things with the with the client. It's not for me to get into their procedures, but not always are they made aware of the fact that a person is a veteran and as a veteran has earned the extra consideration of the legal system. So uh, we'll talk to the uh, client's attorney. Uh, Occasionally we'll talk to the staff at the uh, courthouse that handles the vet court program. We really don't intercede per se because that's really not our place. We don't know law. It's appropriate that we don't get involved, but we're here if we're needed. Uh, We'll help the veteran establish with VA Medical a uh, treatment program or maybe a uh, residency program of some weeks to months at Montrose, sometimes all the way out to Bath where they have these recovery centers, and uh, we'll do whatever we can to help this veteran get the the assistance they need. We have transported veterans up to Albany so they can get a shuttle from Albany to Bath for one of their programs, and if we're apprised of his return, we'll pick him up and bring him back home when his treatment's completed. So you just said a couple of interesting things. Number one is that when a vet is stopped and subsequently arrested. So there's no automatic referral to the court by the police? Not really. Uh, I think everybody wants to follow a very careful method uh, of, of dealing with the client. So uh, they have their procedures, and they want to follow them to the letter. Uh, they don't want to intrude on this person's rights. But they genuinely do want to do whatever they can within the framework of the vet court program to see that it works. In a 2017 report prepared by the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law, the name of the report is The Intersection of Opioid Overdose and Veterans' Mental Health Challenges, they cite that from 2001 to 2013, Prescriptions for opiates among veterans spiked 270%, leading to addictions and fatal overdoses twice the national average. Coincidentally, in 2013, the VA launched the Opioid Safety Initiative. Their stated objective is to reduce high opioid application for the treatment of chronic pain through patient education, close monitoring, and the use of alternative medication. Do you have any experience with this program, John? Uh, Yes, I I do. I've had a a chronic 
quote-unquote bad back for a long time. For years, on both the private side and the VA side, the solution was always medication. Fortunately, I'm one of those guys who uh, it doesn't do anything for me. I go to sleep and that's it. The pain's still there. When the realization hit across the whole medical field that there was too much emphasis on pain medication and not looking at the whole person. Um, In my case, uh, I was introduced to a a doctor out there at Castle Point for acupuncture, massage, pads. uh, One of them contains hot sauce, capacin, creams. And the thinking is that by overstimulating the nerves in the skin and the location of the pain, it would cancel out the nerve signals from the other pain. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But they genuinely tried. They really tried very hard to find some other package of treatments or hands-on treatment that would work in place of the pills, which for me didn't work at all. It just made me sleepy. A lot of uh, people ran into this when they started to wean away from wholesale uh, opioid medications. Boy, did we get a lot of phone calls from a lot of veterans who relied on these things in order to get through and be productive. We're not talking about somebody going home being stoned, but just to be productive, something some way to alleviate the pain. They were outraged. They were scared to death. They didn't know which way to go. I'm gratified to see in the last two, three years, we don't get too many of these phone calls anymore. Apparently, the VA uh, has found a balance between the prescription of painkillers and other forms of treatment. It must be working because we're not getting the phone calls we got during the transition. And in my case, it's worked reasonably well. Still got a bad back, but I'm still functional. In your opinion, considering the entire treatment requirements of a vet with multiple agencies, what should be the one thing that you would improve in the process? We really need a a clearinghouse, some mechanism to pull all of the agencies together and get us all on the same page, develop warm handoffs between one agency and another. There's just so much out there that you can't keep track of it all. I've got a a binder here with business cards from people all over the VA and everywhere else in our little world of veteran service. We can't keep track of everything. Somebody comes in and they have a particular issue. I'm going through my business cards looking to see which department somebody's in so I can refer them. It's just so big. Add to that all that DFS does, all that public health nursing does, all these other departments, all these grant-based organizations. How in the world do do we all keep track of one another and work with one another? Everybody's trying, but there's duplication of effort in some areas and a completely barren landscape in other areas, simply because there's just too much going on. And sometimes the efforts actually diverge and you go in two separate directions. That happens too. A lot of things 
really required a veteran like everyone else, they have to manage their care. You have to be their own advocate. You have to. Somebody's got to be steering the boat, and the best person is the patient. It's nice that you can rely on agencies and the medical profession to care for you, but ultimately you've got to be a, a participant. You can't be a spectator in this. And a lot of times where people really get into a jam is because they stop paying attention. They're just going along. And if the system has a breakdown or you hit a void spot, boy, you're in a jam now. Well, it's been very informative as usual, John. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, thank you very much, Doug. Uh, this is really uh, a great opportunity to talk to anyone who's interested uh, we're here so five days a week, nine to five. You got a question? Call us at eight four five eight zero seven zero two three three. And your website? Well, it'd be SullivanCounty.gov, and uh, we're developing a website. Uh, we even show up on Facebook once in a while through the county web system. Give us a call. Terrific. Thank you very much, John. For more information about the Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency, visit them on the web at sullivanny.us slash departments slash veterans. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, and you are, of course, listening to Let's Talk Vets. And I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. When is a court not a typical court? Well, perhaps when the court's stated mission is to promote sobriety, recover, and stability through coordinated response to the veterans' dependency on alcohol, drugs, and or management of their mental illness. Chris Deutsch is the Director of Communications for the Association of Drug Court Professionals. Chris Deutsch, Director of Communications for the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk about this really important and very unusual organization. What exactly is the Veterans Treatment Court? Yeah, so so Veterans Treatment Court is a is an innovation of, it, within the justice system uh, that started ten years ago. The idea is really simple: when veterans come into contact with the justice system due to a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder, when appropriate, how do we divert them into a program that connects them with the benefits and the treatment that they've earned? How do we keep veterans out of jail? and in treatment and get them to a point where they can emerge from the justice system healthy and ready to to engage with the community and not come back. This is really an extension of the drug court model, which has been around for, uh, gosh, almost 30 years now. So it's, it's not entirely new concept, but the idea of applying it specifically to veterans is relatively new and, and over the last 10 years has, has really become a successful alternative to incarceration. Well, take us back to the beginning because uh, in the research that I did for this program, it was kind of unusual how this whole thing started. It was kind of an accident. 
That's right. Yeah. So picture it. It's 2007. There's a judge up in Buffalo, New York, a man named Robert Russell. And Judge Russell's been a long-time drug court judge uh, and even a mental health court judge, in addition to having regular criminal court dockets. Judge Russell, around 2006, 2007, he started to notice more and more veterans were coming through his dockets. And he, he was recognizing that a lot of them were struggling with substance use disorders, mental health disorders, trauma. A lot of them had underlying reasons for their involvement in the justice system. A lot of them didn't have any crim- prior criminal history, then all of a sudden, here they are before the courts on an assault charge or on a DWI charge. Around the same time, he was dealing with a Vietnam veteran on one of his mental health court dockets. And this gentleman was not responding to treatment. They were having a really hard time engaging with him. And one day, in a moment of pure exasperation, uh, Judge Russell looked at his court coordinator and another one of his, the court employees, both Vietnam veterans, and he said, you know what, guys, why don't you guys, why don't you take him out in the hall, talk to him, you're all veterans, maybe you can reach him in a way that I can't. The three of them go out in the hall, they talk for over an hour. When Judge Russell recalls the case, the, the gentleman stands at parade rest, and when Judge Russell says, are you willing to accept the help we're offering you today? He looks him in the eye and he says, yes, sir. And at that moment, the light bulb went off. Judge Russell realized that there was a therapeutic element to the camaraderie that exists among the men and women who have served, and that more could be done to tap into that to help these veterans accept the help that's being offered. And at the same time, he also recognized that there were services out there for veterans that, that were really specific to their needs, that not, and not enough was being done to connect them with it. So immediately, Judge Russell and his team set out to create a veterans-only docket that would become the first veterans treatment court in the nation. He went to the local VA medical center. He said, I want someone to sit in court, make up referrals. We need to get these folks into treatment right away. The VA medical center said yes. He went to local veterans in the community. He said, I want you to come sit in court and be mentors to the veterans in my program. A bunch of veterans raised their hand and said, we'll do it. He built a culture in that courtroom where it was okay to accept help, where veterans were there to support one another, and where the services were in place to meet their needs. That was the spark that that really ignited this movement and has led 10 years later to over 350 operational veterans treatment courts. About how many veterans would you say go through the process each year, 10 years in now? Yeah, so we estimate uh, right now there are about 15,000 veterans being served by uh, by one of these programs. And we just uh, kind of recap that this the Veterans Court is actually an offshoot of the uh, national drug court system. Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, drug courts have been around for, for almost three decades, and, and really the, the premise is for the judge, the prosecutor, defense attorney, probation, law enforcement, case managers, the traditional justice professionals to work together with treatment in a non-adversarial setting where the goal is the health and wellness of the individual in the program. You know, these programs are highly structured, they're rigorous, they're intense, there's close supervision, but they offer the opportunity for the person to emerge happy and healthy and and um, in treatment and ready to, to, to live their life and not have to come back to the justice system. I think, 
you know, when you start to look at the data, you see that a lot of folks who come in and out of the courts are there really as a result of some condition, whether it's a substance use or a mental health disorder. And I'm not talking about every offender. I'm not talking about the extremely violent offenders or the folks who really do belong in, in behind bars. But, but there's a lot of folks who, if it weren't for that addiction, they wouldn't be out committing crimes. And so the, the idea is, well, let's treat the addiction. Let's hold them accountable. But we'll treat the addiction. We'll give them the wraparound services they need to be stabilized and to not have to come back. And that's really the premise that veterans treatment courts are built on. Uh, you mentioned about the non-adversarial approach. Yes. In the due process of the veterans treatment courts, what is, what is that? How does that work? Well, you know, I I think in the traditional court setting, um, it, it is obviously adversarial. You know, you have you have prosecutor. Uh, and defense attorneys sort of duking it out with the judge as the arbiter. Um, and, and obviously that, that's a system that works for, for serious criminal cases, but there, there is a time when justice is perhaps best served by the justice system coming together to say, how can we all work together to get this individual the treatment they need so that they no longer commit crimes? And that's what we mean by non-adversarial. You have a team in place, whether it's a drug court or a veterans treatment court, where everyone is sitting around the table trying to figure out how best to help these individuals. Prosecution is going to have a perspective. Defense is going to have a perspective. The treatment provider is going to weigh in and, and, and make specific recommendations about treatment. Probation's involved because they're the ones doing the supervision and the home visits. Everyone has a chance to weigh in, but ultimately they're all working together towards the same goal. Um, and ultimately it's the judge who, who, um, who then takes all that information and it sort of plays out in the courtroom in their interaction with the participant. What is meant by early identification of eligible veterans and why is that so important? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, before uh, veterans treatment courts, there really weren't a lot of communities that were identifying veterans when they came into contact with the justice system. So, for example, when, when after the first veterans treatment court launched, I would get a lot of phone calls from communities and they'd say, we heard about veterans treatment court and we want to launch one. It sounds like a great idea. And I'd say, okay, how many veterans are arrested in your county every month? And they would have no idea. <laughs> because they're not tracking it. They weren't sure the scope of the problem. And, and if you don't know the scope of the problem, it's very hard to develop a, a solution. One of the things veteran treatment courts have helped do is make sure that, that, that jurisdictions are tracking this information. They're identifying veterans as early as possible, um, you know, sometimes as early as that first encounter with police. Uh, a lot of jurisdictions are training their law enforcement to recognize uh, how to look how to identify veterans, and then use that to help de-escalate, you know, be able to, to, to deal with whatever the situation is um, based on the fact that that individual is a veteran. Um, at booking, you know, sometimes even if, even if you decide you're going to try to identify veterans at booking, it may not be enough to just ask, are you a veteran? A lot of veterans may not self-identify as a veteran. They may feel like, if I say I'm a veteran, I'm going to lose my benefits, so I better not, or well, I didn't serve in combat, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the reserves, maybe I'm not a veteran. You know, making sure that we're identifying people who have served so that then the system can respond accordingly. 
if there's a Veterans Treatment Court, refer them for eligibility there. If they have benefits that are in place, work with the local VA Medical Center to make sure that those benefits remain in place uh, while they're going through the court system. You know, there's just a lot of reasons why we need to we need to make sure we're identifying veterans as early as we can. In preparing for this program, we talk a little bit about PTSI now, it's called, mm-hmm. and some of the local service providers like the uh, Veterans Service Agency here in Sullivan County and the Health Department and others, their common comment is that uh, we need a clearinghouse. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is spread out you got something over here something over there there's redundancy of programs and there's also a lack of programs once a vet is in your system your program really strives to address collateral issues that are necessary to really help the client and improve their quality of life tell us about this continuum of care how it supports the client's odds to succeed yeah so you're exactly right you know there are a myriad of organizations working to support veterans out there, but it can be hard to navigate. It can be hard to to know exactly where the access points are for those programs. One of the things we do when we go into a jurisdiction and train them on implementing a Veterans Stream Accord is we will do some community mapping where we'll try to pull together all of those resources so that the courtroom really becomes a one-stop shop. You know, when you think about some of these issues, PTSI, substance use disorder, they're incredibly destructive on a, on a person's life. A lot of times the veterans who come into Veterans Human Court, they've lost their housing. They've lost their family. They're unemployable. They're in really rough shape. And it's not enough to get them into treatment and address the mental health needs or their substance use disorder needs. You've really got to have the wraparound services in place to make sure they have stable housing. They're able to go back to school. They're able to further their education. They have family counseling. You know, you've got to really put this individual back together beyond just that treatment aspect. And so, so Veterans Treatment Courts will really try to harness all of those resources at the local, state, and federal level available to veterans and get them in one place so that whatever they need to help support their recovery the court can connect them with it. So it's fairly obvious one of the things that was missing in trying to get veterans into the system and trying to communicate with them was the fact that they're used to discipline, they're used to regimentation. Mm-hmm. So I take it that the court and the system and all of the surrounding services and support are more disciplined than the regular drug court, almost as if it was when they were in the service. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I would say it's more disciplined or structured, but I would say the veterans in the program respond in a different way than non-veterans do to a drug court. In Veterans Treatment Court, we see the folks almost thrive under that structure and, and system of accountability in a way that, that folks who haven't served, frankly, don't, because there, there was never a point in their life where th- there was that structure. With veterans, that's not the case. All of these folks have been through training, have lived structured lives, and so they do tend to uh, respond really well to the structure of a veterans treatment court. And that's one of the things that you know a veteran in the program will say: "This is like having my my unit back." You know, it feels comfortable to them because they've experienced those types of relationships in the past, and that's a really powerful. That's a really powerful thing, and, it, and, and that doesn't happen when you have veterans who are kind of 
spread out amongst a bunch of different dockets in the justice system. By, by clustering them all together, not only are you able to then bring in all the resources into one place, but the veterans themselves feel, feel that sense of camaraderie and that sense of structure. And, and frankly, they, I think they buy into the program a little bit faster than, than maybe non-veterans do in a drug court. Let's talk for a minute about how the process reinforces compliance with the program laid out by the court, because that's important. Yeah, it, it's really critical. Um, it, it, and it comes back to that, that team dynamic and that non-adversarial approach in some ways. You know, typically these programs last about a year, year and a half, sometimes two years. And throughout that entire process, the team is getting together regularly and discussing each individual in the program. One of the issues we see throughout the justice system is sort of the way communication can be fragmented. Probation knows one thing about someone, a treatment provider knows another, uh, the prosecution knows something, but nobody's on the same page. Veterans treatment courts and, and, and all treatment courts really, they, they try to eliminate that. And so you have strong communication between the entire team so that everyone's aware of what's going on in that individual's life. You know, if they need if they need additional treatment, if they need additional housing, if they've just gotten a divorce and maybe that's going to impact their recovery, you want everyone on the same page so that the court can respond accordingly and with, with all the relevant information. That plays out over the entire course of someone's involvement. At the beginning of the program, they're going to appear in court more regularly. They're going to have closer supervision. As they move through the program, those parameters might change. Once they've been in treatment and they've been stabilized, the court may move towards identifying some of those other issues like housing or employment and kick in those resources. So it it really tends to evolve as the participant moves through the program and gets to a point where by the time they're ready to, we call it, graduate the program, they're really in a position to be set up for success. And the team has been there every step of the way uh, supporting them. Can you ascribe a percentage of success to this program? Well, you know, we're, we're waiting on big national studies to be done on outcomes. But I can tell you, anecdotally, when you talk to some of these courts, they're seeing outcomes that are, frankly, unprecedented anywhere else in the system. You know, Buffalo, New York, for example, uh, where the first veteran treatment court started, they've been operating 10 years, 95% of the the folks who complete their program don't come back into the justice system. That you just don't see that uh, anywhere <laughs> in criminal justice. So we're really excited about how well these programs are doing. You know, and frankly, the outcomes extend beyond just that individual. There's massive cost savings by putting someone through a program like Veterans Treatment Court, as opposed to sending them to jail, where the taxpayer essentially pays for that person to be behind bars for a year, maybe more. The benefits are just astronomical. Uh, when you consider these are folks who are going to complete the program, they're going to be paying their taxes, they're, they're going to be employed, they're going to be taking care of their family, you know, they're not going to be draining the system, they're going to be contributing to it. So the outcomes are really, really encouraging for, for veterans treatment courts. Everything that you're doing, knitting a quilt of success, and one of yeah. the common threads is these peer mentors. They're yeah. very important to the process, aren't they? Yeah, you know, that idea really started with Judge Russell when he had asked 
the two Vietnam veterans to go talk to the Vietnam veteran in his program, and, and he really saw how powerful uh, that connection is between folks who have served. And so one of the interesting and exciting developments with Veterans Treatment Courts has been other programs mirroring what Buffalo did. So they'll invite mentor veterans from the community who volunteer to be mentors. Um, you know, that's not a clinical relationship. That's really battle buddies. That Those are folks who sit in court, and uh, after that individual appears before the judge, they'll They'll spend some time with their mentor. The mentors can, you know, give them a pep talk, tell them uh, they need to, to, to do better, and tell them in a way that maybe the judge can't. You know, they, they have a way of communicating with one another that that's unique and, and different from the way um, maybe the folks involved in the court can communicate and really just develop a relationship of support. And it's been a very powerful element to Veterans Treatment Courts. In fact, there was a study out of Ohio that looked at uh, Ohio Veterans Treatment Courts, and one of the things they found that they weren't expecting to find was that the mentoring was really crucial in helping with outcomes for treatment. You know, it's having that relationship, that vet-to-vet relationship to fall back on, really helped guide people through the program. And so one of the things we're doing now is really trying to go out and offer training for volunteer veterans to be mentors. And what's inspiring is that no matter where we go, we see veterans in the community raise their hands and and volunteer because they want to be of service to their fellow vets. And some of those guys are probably graduates of the program? Yeah, we see a lot of uh, veterans complete the program and then turn right around and volunteer to be be a mentor. And, you know, those are some of the most powerful um, mentors you have because they've They've truly been through it. They can communicate back to another participant and, and really get their attention in a way that others can't. So, so we do see that a lot. What a great story. What exactly is judicial interaction? I mean, obviously the judge holds a, a special place in any courtroom. In Veterans Treatment Court, the judge has such a powerful role because if you've ever been to a treatment court, what you see is that the interaction the judge has with the participant and the ongoing relationship they have is unlike any other. You're not going to find it anywhere else in the justice. The judge is there looking the person in the eye, thanking them for their service, and saying, look, we're here to help. What do you need? How can we help you? You know, when Judge Russell gets a veteran into his courtroom, that that veteran, you know, maybe they've been arrested a couple times. They're very used to the court Frankly, bad things happen to them when they're in court, right? In in Veterans Treatment Court, they have a judge, you know, who's going to look right at them and say, we're here to help you. What do you need? As they move through the program, the judge knows what's going on with them because they're meeting at the court's meeting as a team. So the judge says, hey, I heard you're doing really great in treatment. I just got a report. You know, you made it to all of your, your, your treatment sessions. Congratulations. Hey, everyone, let's give them a round of applause. And and they have these these interactions, these conversations that – it makes a big difference in, in how comfortable that veteran feels um, in the courtroom, a place, frankly, where most, of, most people are not all that comfortable. So, so the judge is just crucial, and that ongoing judicial interaction occurs throughout an individual's time in, in, in the program and, um, and is really just, just vital to, to, to the success of, of the program. I also noticed that... Um... There's an emphasis placed on interdisciplinary education for court personnel. We're really talking about combining cr- 
criminal justice and veterans affairs. Through no fault of their own, a lot of folks who work in criminal justice aren't all that familiar with veterans affairs. And and a lot of people who work in veterans affairs aren't necessarily all that familiar with what how the criminal justice system operates. And so there's a need to, to, to continuously train the veteran stream of court personnel to make sure that, for one, that they're following best practices and they're aware of the latest research out there on, on how the model should be implemented, but that they're also, you know, they're learning a new language. They're, they're learning how to talk to veterans, how to liaise with the, the VA, how to apply for benefits, how to do things that maybe they haven't known how to do in the past. And so we really place a great emphasis on ongoing training. You know, time and again, we see that the more courts receive training, the better their outcomes are. Um, so it's it's just really important. And it's important for, for the team to learn how to function together in a way that perhaps they're not used to functioning. I keep hearing the same thing again all throughout the conversation that we're having about, you know, relationships. And that goes for your community-based service providers as well. And I have to assume, I may be wrong, but i got to assume that they're willing participants when it comes to this effort. Absolutely. There's so many... There's so many service providers out there and programs out there. And as we talked about, a lot of times the issue is not the willingness to be of service. It's connecting the dots and making sure folks are communicating with one another. Veterans Stream Courts are great at breaking down some of those barriers, getting everyone into the same room so that everyone can work together. Um, and, you know, a lot of the issues a veteran may be dealing with you know, the VA is going to be able to, to, to address a lot of it, but, but they may have needs that fall outside of what the VA can provide. And so having local community providers in place is, is really important. Real quick, before we wrap this up, we talked about all the parts and pieces. Could you walk us through a straw man or a typical case timeline from arrest to success? Yeah, I, you know, actually I was, uh, I, I was exchanging uh, uh, text messages with a, with a, a veteran who I've become friends with, who was a participant in the Veterans Treatment Court in Philadelphia. We were texting about the start of the hockey season, but his story is a really great example of how these programs work. So this is a Marine Corps vet. He was in the initial evasion of Iraq. He had a stop loss, spent a lot of time in combat. He got home. Within 24 hours of getting home, he's arrested, gets in a bar fight. This starts a sort of downward spiral for him. He he was dealing with some undiagnosed uh, PTSD. He was self-medicating with with alcohol uh, and opiates, and for a number of years he was sort of in and out of the justice system. At no point was there any connection to treatment. His family life started to deteriorate. His housing deteriorated. He was really in bad shape. Probably four or five years ago now, he gets arrested. I think it was another assault charge. This time, he gets referred to Veterans Treatment Court. There's a recognition out of the DA's office that, hey, there might be some issue here that his history we're looking at, at the charges he's racking up, we think that maybe he'd be eligible for this new program we've got called Veterans Treatment Court. So there's an assessment done, and it's determined that, yeah, indeed, there's a mental health need and there's a substance need. He's referred to Veterans Treatment Court. Immediately, the veteran Schumer court gets him into treatment. He's ha- he has to appear regularly before the judge. He's appearing once a week. He's going to treatment. He's meeting with a mentor. They start to address housing. He's starting to get more comfortable as he moves through the program. 
The treatment's helping to stabilize his life. They bring in family counseling to help him reconnect with his spouse, with his kids. Gradually, he starts to put his life back together. He starts to address some of the demons he was dealing with. He learns how to cope. And after a year, year and a half, he's a new person. At that point, they recommend him for graduation. He graduates surrounded by friends and family. He's happy. He's healthy. He immediately volunteers to be a mentor to other veterans. His life is completely transformed. And we're certainly not, as a nation or as a community, better off with him sitting in jail. His family's not better off. His community's not better off. The nation's not better off. We are much better served by having him out in the community, being a father, being a husband, being a mentor, being a contributing member of society, and that's exactly what he is today. He's now coordinating the mentors in that veterans treatment court, working, you know, goes into jails, works with justice-involved veterans. He's precisely the kind of person we need on the front lines of, of the justice system. And so, you know, that's just one example, and there are thousands and thousands just like it. That is an incredible story. When I heard about this, I'm learning things doing this show that I had never known before. In closing, Chris, veterans are don't like to ask for anything. They're you know yeah. pretty proud people, and I could see where some of them get in trouble because their attitude is, I, I don't want your help. Get away from me. I'm done with the government. But given your experience with veterans, what is the one thing that you would say where a veteran is struggling with addiction? What is the one piece of advice you would give them? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a great question. I, it, it, it's easy to lose hope and to feel like there's no way out. And I think what Veterans Treatment Courts show and, and, and what, what we know to be true is that there are, there's a huge community of folks out there ready to embrace you not judge you and get you the help that you need. And, 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 you know, sometimes all you have to do is just ask for it and then let them come in and get the work started. You know, I, I've seen folks in these programs who have reached the deepest depths of addiction, have lost everything positive in their life, and yet they are able to rebuild and reconnect and turn their lives around. No individual is beyond hope, and and there are a lot of people out there who wanna who who are ready to help. So, I, I would hope any any individual or any family members who are who are dealing with folks who are struggling with these issues to just not not lose that hope and 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 to reach out and ask for help. This is a great story. I got to tell you, Chris Deutsch, Director of Communications for the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for um, all you're doing and, and, and for address, addressing this issue and some of the other issues you talk about. It's such a great service to the community, and so I just really appreciate For more information, you can go online and go to justiceforvets.org. Well, pretty full program tonight. We do have some time for a few news items before we say goodnight. Uh, an update. Last program, we told you about a stand-down event, September 14th. 
And uh, this event was presented by the Sullivan County Veterans Coalition in Monticello. And these events bring together multiple veteran service providers in one place. John Crotty, director of the Sullivan County Veterans Service Agency, shared the following with us. There were 54 vets and 66 additional people in attendance, an all-time high. And vets had to use a check sheet to visit all the stations in order to qualify for surplus clothing. This allowed for compilation and update of contact information, also ensuring that each vet was made aware of all available services in attendance. Uh, VSA reports five new vets in their system as a result. We have an all-you-can-eat breakfast at American Legion Post 1266, 92 Pine Street in Wurtsboro, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Saturday the 13th, military-style chow line, Uh, prepared and served by veterans. All proceeds support programs for veterans throughout Sullivan County. Seven bucks at the door. Call 888-4958 or 888-2535. From the Wichita Eagle, after serving a tour in Iraq with the Air Force in 2008, Sarah Sell had her first experience using veteran services. Initially, my experience was wading through the system I didn't understand and being questioned in hallways because I wasn't supposed to be there, she said. Just being asked, where's your husband, or who are you here to see, or who's your sponsor? Well, I'm the sponsor. I'm a veteran. In 10 years, Sell's experience with the VA has changed for the better, she said. And on Friday at Robert J. Dole VA Med Center, the VA's efforts to improve how it serves women veterans were demonstrated with the opening of a $1.5 million, 2,700-square-foot clinic focused on women. At the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the clinic, located on the second floor of a recently constructed wing of the hospital, uh, Medical Center Director Rick Amant acknowledged women feeling invisible as veterans. We have a report from Brightport, which is a little disturbing, a newsletter plastered around the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, campus in recent weeks called for a ban on enrollment for U.S. military veterans seeking education in American universities. The newsletter, which is titled Social Justice Collective Weekly, argues that military veterans are unfit to be students in American college campuses because they might, quote, openly mock the ideas of diversity and safe spaces, and because they've been socialized by a military culture that is white supremacist. A four-year tradition university is supposed to be a place of learning and understanding of safety and security. However, there is an element amongst us who may be frustrating these goals. Veterans. The University of Colorado is known for the number of veterans who are full and part-time students. Writer and Army veteran Paul O'Leary responded to that newsletter on recently in a blog post aggressively defending those who have enlisted in the armed forces. Quote, isn't it wonderful we live in a country where all of us feel free to express our opinions in the public forum, where we're all free to pursue educational excellence. Quote, with black, female, Hispanic, and Asian service members holding senior leadership positions across a vast spectrum of fields from combat arms to support and administrative, including generals and sergeants major, Can this truly be called white supremacist organization? And in Exeter, Rhode Island, nearly invisible in the rain clouds, a ghostly F-15 screeched over the mourners at a Rhode Island Veterans Memorial Cemetery 
and vanished in a roar of thunder. This flyover was a sign of respect from one combat veteran to another. Frederick Moore Meller, an Air Force pilot from Cranston who had been missing for over half a century, was at last being laid to rest in the earth of his home state late Friday last recently. Honor guards from the U.S. Air Force, Cranston Police, and Patriot Guard riders stood without flinching in the driving rain as the Air Force hearse carrying Meller's casket pulled up to the gravesite. And on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up tonight. I have a few things in closing, some acknowledgments. Uh, Centers for Disease Control, a National uh, Safety Council report, Prescription Nation, 2018. University of Pennsylvania, Stars and Stripes, Military Times, and Military.com, Veterans Administration, and of course, Chris Deutsch, Director of Communications for the Association of Drug Court Professionals, and our old friend John Crotty from the Veterans Service Agency. You know, there are times when you can't go it alone, so know that there is help out there. A good place to start is Sullivan County Drug Addiction Helpline, manned 24 hours by Sullivan County Social Workers, Catholic Charities, and SALT, which is Sullivan Agencies Working Together. Volunteers, 866-832-5575 or text hashtag HOPENY. Until next time, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your service. Until next time, company dismissed. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, WMH.org. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. Member-supported community radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Two minutes to 8 o'clock and 69 degrees here in Jeffersonville. Surprisingly warm day today, but just a few clouds left over. Slight chance of showers tonight and then heavy rain tomorrow. 100% chance of heavy rain. High of 70, though, but in the driving wet rain. Chance of showers continuing into Thursday night. Low 48 overnight. And then Friday, partly sunny. High of 52 Partly cloudy overnight, low of 39 on Friday. And then Saturday, a chance of showers again, high of 49. And then down into the 30s again, Saturday night overnight, partly cloudy. Sunday, mostly sunny, high of 54. And then chance of showers again Sunday night. Don't put your slickers away just yet, folks. This is still WJFF 90.5 FM Radio Catskill. Stay tuned right now for Neonatal Pulse with me, Brad Mann, here for the next two hours. Only new music. And then the Big Insomniac Show at 10 o'clock, a wonderful Wednesday night 
of music for your ears. Stay tuned here on Radio Catskill 90.5 FM. Support comes from you and from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, New York, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.